We have the privilege this morning of continuing in our series that we've titled The Gathering. As you know, this is a bit of an unusual series for us. Typically, we have a section or a book of the Bible that we're walking through one portion at a time, but we thought it would be helpful to study this topic of the gathering, looking at different scriptures as we lead up to the Advent season and celebration of Christmas, after which we will launch an extended series in the book of Revelation, as you know. But for this morning, we're going to continue this series called The Gathering, looking at different elements of of why this is the best day of the week and how we can make the most of it. Well, we went as a family, or or me and my two older boys this year anyway, we, we went for the first time to a match, I think it's called a match, of the Austin Football Club. Omar will correct me if that's inaccurate, but I think it's a match. The Austin Football Club, now now, uh, we had never been before, and my two boys who love soccer were really excited to see a professional soccer game. Wasn't something I grew up with, and they were excited to be there with their grandfather and their uncle. And we were there in plenty of time. We were excited. We were anticipating. We were prepared. Snacks were in hand. But then due to lightning in the area, the game was delayed and delayed and delayed. (laughs) And well over an hour later and more, eventually the team did come out. But in that long stretch of waiting in that game, it becomes very clear that however nice the stadium is, and it is nice, however enjoyable the company is, and they were enjoyable, however nice the snacks are, the main thing that makes that event worth it is the presence of the team. The main thing that makes the event worth it is the presence of the team. When the team is present, the crowd, and particularly the crowd at that arena, transforms. I haven't been to a professional soccer game. It is an experience. It transforms. I mean, people are shouting and chanting, and they have unique chants, apparently, for the Austin Football Club, and the band is playing. That is when the event is what it is meant to be. What makes Sunday what it is meant to be? A lot of good things happen on a Sunday morning. In some ways, it's similar to a soccer game. There are good friends and family. There's the buzz of a crowd. There's even a sense of unity in the crowd at the event. They're all together for one reason. But what makes the gathering of God's people what it is meant to be? It is the presence of God with them. That is what makes the gathering what it is meant to be. Trying to make the most of a Sunday apart from the presence of God would be a little like trying to make the most of a soccer game without the team. And I tried. I tried to put a good face on it. I tried to be enthusiastic. But at the end of the day, the sacrifice, the cost, the going, the being there would not have been worth it if there is no team. And in the same way, the going is not worth it if God... God is not the center of why we are going. The presence of God with His people. That is the most exhilarating, the most central, the most gracious, the most privileged part of a gathering on Sunday. Now, now I want to make a caveat because this morning we're going to talk about the presence of God in the gathering of God's people. The presence of God in the gathering of God's people. But but, but one caveat, nothing of what I say today should be taken to mean that God does not meet with his people in private. Because of Christ, the blessing of the Spirit of God is given to each and every Christian all the time. We can draw near to God wherever we are, but that truth was never meant to minimize the particular blessing of gathering with God's people in God's presence. And I I think, I could be wrong, but I think our danger today is not so much that we doubt God's presence in private, but that we act as though Sunday is merely a meeting of people praying toward God rather than a gathering with God. 
You see how that could be different? I, I, I have no doubt that when people come to church, they believe in God. They even believe God is watching their gathering. But I think sometimes they think of it as sort of a right religious thing to do where we pray and sing toward God rather than that when we come into this room as a group of people, we are meeting with God. You, you might almost think that today in, in the prevalence of spirituality and seeking your own spiritual pursuits and so forth, it could almost be thought that the one place God surely is is in private, and the one place we don't think of Him as being is in the gathering of the church. Quite the contrast of what it would have been historically, where they would have thought, well, the one place God surely is is in the gathering of the church. I'm not so sure he's present in private. I think it's been reversed in our culture, and at some level, perhaps even in our own souls. Well, I, I know I can meet with God in private, but I don't know so much that he's present in the gathering of the church. We do that because we should. But that contradicts what the Scripture says, that he is absolutely present meeting with his people by his Spirit. Of course, it requires faith because God is not present visibly, but He is present by His Spirit. God is with us right now in the preaching of His Word. God is with us. God is here by His Spirit. God, the God who is, is here in the true gathering of His people. We gather to meet with God. Now, I, I want to reinforce that truth this morning, first by surveying what the Scripture says about God being present in the gathering of His people, and then by applying that truth to how we think about our Sunday gatherings at Redemption Hill. So let, let's walk through a number of Scriptures, first in the Old Testament, then in the New, that talk about the presence of God in the gathering of His people to sort of reinforce this truth. Because it might drift away from our minds in the midst of getting children ready and getting dressed and anticipating the next week of work and looking at our email and checking on our social media. We might forget that when we walk into these rooms with God's people, God is present among us. So let's walk through these scriptures and then apply it to our own church. First, let's look at the Old Testament. We go all the way back to the garden and recognize that the only human community that existed existed together in the presence of God. But then sin separated sinners from the holiness of God and people were thrust out of God's presence. Actually, you can in some ways tell the story, the story of the scriptures in terms of can the people gather in God's presence or not? That, that's one of the ways you could describe the story of the Bible. They were gathered together in God's presence in the garden. They were thrust out of God's presence, but then God regathered them and met with them again. Then they were exiled and thrust out of God's presence, and then ultimately God will gather them again and meet with them in the new heavens and the new earth. That's in some ways the story of the Scriptures. Are God's people gathered and meeting with Him or not? is one story of the Bible. But let's look specifically at after God rescued his people from Egypt and reconstituted them as his people and gathered them together around Mount Sinai. We read this in Exodus 19, 9 through 11. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you. In a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. As Ken mentioned last week, this was a particularly uh, concerning and fearful gathering. But nevertheless, it was a moment when the assembly of the people were together and God was there with them. Then the story of Exodus continues and God intends to create a permanent location where he will live in the midst of his people. So they build a tabernacle, a special tent that has the special place of the king in the midst of all the tents. And at the very end of Exodus, a passage that I don't think we always give due importance to because we like to talk about the plagues and how God parted the Red Sea and the drama of deliverance and crushing Pharaoh and the horse and the rider and all that. But Exodus actually has two parts. It is rescue 
for the purpose of relationship. It's not just rescue. It's rescue for the purpose of an assembly that God dwells within. That's the whole story of Exodus. The first half is the rescue, and it's exciting. But the second half, we could even say, is more exciting because it's the point. God dwells with his people. And after they've built the tabernacle exactly as God told them they would, Exodus concludes on this climactic note in chapter 40. Moses writes, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So when they are wandering through the wilderness, they would set up their tents in such a way. If you've never seen a, a, a pictorial depiction of this, it's delightful to see. The tribes in the north, tribes in the south, tribes in the west, tribes in the, in the east, and there right in the middle is the tabernacle. And on that tabernacle, the glory that represented God himself is present among the assembly of his people. So when they gather and are gathered together, God is there among them. They're not some randering collection of nomads in the wilderness. They are a collection of nomads in the wilderness that God is among then we see, once they are in the promised land, God gives to Solomon the calling of building a permanent structure to replace the tabernacle that is called the temple. And once it has been built in all of its glory and majesty and might, Solomon at its dedication prays. And we read about that in 2 Chronicles 6.12. It says, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the, and you want to notice this word, assembly. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the original Hebrew, it's worth noting, and you might be interested to note, they use the word ekklesia, which is the same word that we use that translates into church in the New Testament. So if you want to do a very wooden translation, you could even say that Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the church of Israel and spread out his hands. And then notice what happens. In chapter 7, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Now, if you've read First and Second Kings, you know that the people, in spite of this revelation of God's presence, immediately, during and after Solomon's reign, begin to rebel against him. The tribes are divided. Israel is taken away from Judah. They are eventually exiled. Then Judah is exiled. And you can read in Ezekiel the punishment that God renders. One of the punishments is symbolically represented when the glory of the Lord departs from the temple. So yet again, God's presence in the midst of the gathering of his people is separated because of the judgment due to sin. Actually, one way you could talk about judgment in the Old Testament is that God's people are scattered and God's presence is no longer among them. What is Old Testament judgment? One way you can put it is God's people are scattered and God's presence is no longer among them. It struck me as I was thinking about this that what the Old Testament was count as judgment, some Christians today do voluntarily. They are scattered and not concerned about not being with God in the assembly of his people. The Old Testament would call that judgment. People and even Christians today might call that personal preference. 
But that is not how the Bible would describe it. Ezekiel describes the departing of God from his temple, the judgment of God and the scattering of his people as judgment falling on them, a grief, a reason for lamentation, as Jeremiah would have put it, and woe, a reason to repent and to come back to God in the gathering of his people. Now, the message of the Old Testament regarding God's presence is clear. It is God's intention to dwell in the midst of the gathering of his people, to be present with them as their God. Perhaps you've heard this phrase, it's repeated regularly. I will be their God, and they will be my people, and I will dwell among them as their God. That is God's intention. That's what God says is how it ought to be, together with God. That's God's idea of the best day of the week. You're together, and I'm with you. Now, that's the Old Testament. However, the promise that the Lord would indeed dwell with them lingers in spite of the judgment due to their sin. So then we get to the New Testament. We get to the New Testament, and, and of course, you know the passage in John chapter 1 where it says the Word became flesh and the Word is tabernacled among them. So God sets His own Son up as a tabernacle within which we can meet with God Himself. So that the finished work of Christ, the person of Christ, is a, a place, if we can call it that way theologically, where God's people can meet with him, without worry of the judgment due to their sin. But that's not just metaphorical. It's not just spiritual. When we see this in what Jesus says in Matthew 18, 20. Very precious verse that I'm sure you've heard or quoted or somewhere. Or is of a magnet somewhere in one Christian bookstore that you bought and put on your refrigerator. He said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, Certainly that verse means that God is present in every small gathering of Christians. But the immediate context is the gathering of the church. So though it, I, I don't mean to say that he isn't present when just two or three people of the church are gathered. I, I think in some ways the point is being made that he is present with his church. So if you read the whole context, it says this. Speaking of a, a sinner that is indulging in unrepentant sin, it says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Speaking of the assessment and de decision of the church regarding the exclusion of a person from fellowship who is claiming to be a Christian but will not repent, that the church is given a, an authority, a, an earthly level authority to decide who ought rightly to be counted among those who believe and have a credible profession of faith. And then he says... If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So we, we wouldn't want to create a contrast as if to say God is certainly present with two or three, but he's not present with 20 or 30 or two or 300. And yet sometimes I almost think that's what we do. We're confident God is present with two or three, but we don't always act as if he is certainly present with two or three hundred. The point is, even if it were two or three, Christ is present among them. Therefore, certainly it is the case that when two or three hundred or twenty or thirty or two or three thousand, Christ is certainly present in the gathering of his people. We see the way this works out displayed in Acts because Christ's bodily resurrection raises a question about the fulfillment of this promise. How is Christ present? In what way is he present since he has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven? How is Christ present with his people? Well, Acts makes it very clear. On the day of Pentecost, we are told that the Holy Spirit, who mediates the presence of Christ to his people, came down on the church. And I, I want you to notice the language here. Notice that Pentecost, in the providence of God, did not take place with individual apostles in their private locations. 
Now, that's worth noting because he certainly could have done that. It could have been that God's Spirit was poured out on the apostles as they represented the church in their individual locations. But no, notice the language. As the 12 apostles represent the new people of God, and we know that's a major point because before Pentecost happens, they replace Judas with a new apostle so that there is a number of 12, and they represent the new people of God, the new tribes of Israel, so to speak. Now the number 12 is complete. Then the Spirit falls, but it falls when they are together. Notice this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, now of course, the Spirit is present with each individual believer, whether they are present in the gathering or not. But it is worth noting that God chose to accomplish the outpouring of His Spirit when they were together. There is a delight God seems to have in in, in having the gathering of His people. He, He certainly is aware of them and loves them and is present with them when they are scattered. But God, if we allow His Word to speak as it wants to, loves the gathering, if we could put it that way. God loves the gathering of His people. And He chooses to highlight that gathering in the way His Spirit operates. We even notice this as an ongoing pattern if you jump ahead to Acts chapter 4. After Peter and John pray for the man to receive strength in his legs, he is healed. They receive opposition and threats from the leaders. They say, do not teach anymore in the name of Christ. And Peter and John say, we we are going to obey God rather than men. But then they go back, it says, to their friends. And notice, notice what it says. They pray for the Lord to give them boldness. And notice, when they had prayed in Acts 4.31, the place in which they were, here's that language again, gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Again, nothing is said here that it isn't present in power in individual moments. Obviously, Peter and John were just the two of them when they, when they were used to heal that man. And yet, this description happens when they are gathered together. So the point to be made is, is God present with his people individually? Yes, he is. But does he choose to work mightily and powerfully by meeting with his people when they gather together? Yes, he does. Is God present in power when his people gather? Yes, he is in the scriptures. And then we we see this continuing to be the expectation when we look ahead, for example, in Ephesians. Notice what Paul says. Do not get drunk with wine, that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit But then notice where we see the effects of that filling. Where do we see the effects of God's presence moving in power on individuals? Where? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God's people are to be filled with the Spirit. That's to be what overpowers them, not addictions of this world. But the effect of that filling is then demonstrated, how? In singing, not just individually to God, but to one another. And the intended context is that they are singing in some kind of gathering. So the effects of the Spirit are seen in the gathering of God's people. We see this perhaps even more pronounced in the extended passage on spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. I can't get into all the works of the Spirit uh, this morning, but, but that's why you should come next weekend, okay? Friday and Saturday, come this weekend. But, but 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul goes into a lengthy description of how God intends His Spirit to be at work among the believers, and in particular, among the believers in a gathering. And one of the concerns he has is that they understand, look, what the Spirit is doing in the gathering is building up the church. So, he says, look, don't do things that would not build up the church. That's not what the Spirit is about. Do things that would build up the church. But then I want you to notice how he concludes. 
Look, look at the phrasing here, how he concludes. In 1 Corinthians 14, he says, If therefore, notice the phrase again, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare, God is really among you. What does Paul have in mind? He's saying, in the gathering of God's people, I want you to speak in such a way that even an unbeliever has to acknowledge God is among you. Now, there's a, tons of pastoral points that could be made about speaking in tongues and prophecy. I, I can't go into all of those, but I just want to make the simple point. Paul's desire, reflecting on God's desire, is that his presence among his people would be so evident that even an unbeliever has to admit it. That God's meeting with his people would be so evident, so manifested, that even an unbeliever, and if an unbeliever who does not believe in Christ should be able to say, God is with this assembly. There's a lot of assemblies in the first century. There's assemblies for oration. There's assemblies for political purposes. There's assemblies to watch gladiators slaughter each other. But this is a different kind of assembly. In this assembly, God God in all of his supernatural power. God in all of his divine purpose. God is present. God is not just out there, someone we're praying towards, sending up prayers and requests and songs and ideas. No, no, God has come down. He is meeting with his people by his spirit. So that God's people, surely, who have believed these things, should be able to say, what, what are we doing when we gather together in that assembly? We are meeting our God. We are meeting our God. We are meeting Him. We are encountering Him. Paul's goal is not for an unspiritual gathering, but a gathering that is edifying in such a way that it is clear God is at work. The point is to be made that when God's people assemble, when they church, they do not gather to pray towards God as Muslims pray toward Mecca or perhaps even Catholics pray toward Mary in hopes that that expectation will be fulfilled and God will send something down or do something in heaven towards them. Rather, they gather with this sober and exhilarating expectation that God is present among them, and present to do things that can only be done as they assemble together. It is as they gather that they hear the Lord speak through the preaching of His Word. It's as they gather that they can be filled with the Spirit and express that filling and obedience of singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. It's as they gather together that they can all prophesy and edify one another. It's as they gather together they can reveal in physical form that they are the new temple of God, the new place of the glory of God dwelling on earth, that though God is spirit, he has revealed his presence in a physical assembly of his people, both in the Old Testament and in the New and in the final assembly to come. When we gather, we gather to meet our God. We gather to meet our God. We gather to encounter the risen Christ through His Spirit. He is dwelling in the midst of His people. He is active in and through us. He is speaking through His Word. He is inhabiting the praises of His people. He is empowering us to serve one another. He is revealing us as His new temple. He is creating and recreating and being within the dwelling place on earth. And he is revealing the finished and sufficient work of Christ. Christians that come to this assembly knowing that they are meeting with God by his spirit, having that expectation, and living as if that is real by the spirit and by faith, are declaring that Christ poured out the spirit in greater measure than anyone else ever could. Because 
only Christ could make a group of people a spiritual temple. Only Christ could pour out his spirit in such a way that we can enter immediately into God's presence just by gathering together that we don't need a priest or a holy of holies to be set up or a tabernacle in this room with lambs to be offered because by faith and through the spirit in the mystery, we literally connect to, as Ken said last week, the actual tabernacle in heaven. And the spirit connects us to that tabernacle when we enter in to the gathering of God's people. We gather to meet with God in such a way that it glorifies Christ as the one who poured out and made possible our access into God's presence. We experience the blessing rather than the judgment. Rather than being scattered and exiled from God, we are assembled and meeting with God. We are evidence of the completion and victory of Christ's work. Rather than being scattered and separate from his dwelling place, we are gathered and encountering him in the assembly of his people. All right. That's the survey of the scriptures leading right up to the point that Ken covered so well last week, the final assembly in heaven that we even now anticipate by faith. But what about, what about you and me and our children and this building and room and place and wherever we happen to be meeting, what about the gathering to meet with God that is Redemption Hill Church, our own church? It's possible to affirm things doctrinally that make no difference in our actual practical lives. We might say, yes, amen, God meets with his people and not function any differently. But if God is meeting with his people, then of all things, we ought to function differently. That ought to to shape how we relate to our own actual church. It'd be a little bit like if we talked about our call to love other believers. Well, every Christian affirms that we're called to love other believers. But you can't love in personal, practical ways that dear brother or sister who lives in some small village in India in any kind of real way, the way it's described in the New Testament. Because you're not there. You can't sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to them. They can't hear you. You can't care for them in their need. They, they can't feel that or experience that. You can pray for them. You can Perhaps you can go visit them. But week by week, we are meant to experience this truth in a real, tangible gathering that is our own local church. How do we do that? How do we act as though we are meeting with God in terms of our own church? And if this isn't your church, this is how you should think about your church. But, but if you're here and you're part of Redemption Hell, how, how do you apply this or function as if you really believe that we are meeting with God? How do we do that in terms of our own church? How do we live like what we believe? How does our technical theology of God's presence with the church become our functional theology of God's presence with the church? Three categories. First of all, our preparation before the meeting. Our preparation before the meeting. We plan as though, because we are, meeting with God himself. We plan as though we are meeting God himself. Let let that sink in in terms of the functional application of that. If we are meeting with God himself when we gather, how do we plan for that meeting? If God has established, if we can put it this way, an appointment with the assembly of his church week by week, how do we plan for that meeting? Well, this heightens the priority of our meeting together, surely. And there's a particular intention of God that ought to shape our preparation. It ought to shape how we think about Saturday night. It ought to shape how we arrange our schedule. It ought to shape how we anticipate Him on Sunday mornings. Because we are meeting with God. This is where I think that idea that, that we're 
we're, we're more like a, a post office than a meeting with God. I think thinking of the church as a post office is often, it's more functionally how we operate. What's the gathering of the church? What's well, like a post office? We go there, we all agree together to write some things to God, and then we put a stamp on it and we send it to Him. And He'll get it eventually. And we sometimes think of the gathering. Well, we come and we, we get his letter and we read his letter. Oh, that was good. And then we write a letter called a prayer or a song to him and we drop it back in the box and it will eventually reach God. And, and maybe we think, well, it gets there awful quickly. Maybe it's more like an email, but it gets there quickly and then he, he speaks to us. But it's more like a way station where we're praying towards God and receiving from God. It's different than an actual moment of meeting God? Do you see how we might think of church more like that post office? Yeah, I'm sending to God and I'm receiving from God, but I'm not meeting with God. I, I, I think perhaps of <laughs> what happened during COVID when there was tons of business meetings happening with people at home and people were wearing things that they would never have worn in the office. You know, they, they would change and put on their business shirt and they still have their pajama shorts or their, their gym attire and bare feet and everything. And they would sit there and then you had all these funny memes about somebody forgot and stood up and then they're, they're right, oh gosh, sorry about that, or, right? Because when, when you're talking to somebody who's over there and there's a certain safety and protection and you can always close the screen, and right, that there's a sense of distance. And, and sometimes I think we smuggle in that sense of distance to our expectation of Sunday morning, even to how we prepare for it. I, I seriously doubt if you're going into a meeting at your office with your boss that three minutes before you would think, oh, well, this tank top isn't going to work. I guess I'll throw on a business shirt real quick. And, and I just lowered the screen where they can't see that my hair's undone. It'll just, I'll just do a little eyebrow level conversation. No, you wouldn't do that going into the office or meeting with an important client. You, you wouldn't do that. What do you do? Y you would spend quite a bit of time before. Listen, Sunday should be more like a wedding than a Zoom meeting. Because we are meeting with the groom. It should be more like a wedding than a Zoom meeting. So it's good to ask ourselves the question, is it like a Zoom meeting or a post office? Look, you don't think about your preparation when you go to mail something at a post office or you get ready for a Zoom meeting. No, but a wedding. Now, that, now that's a very different situation. But when we come, we are actually, by His Spirit, meeting with God. He is here among us right now. God is listening to what I am saying about His Word and the application of it, which sobers me. It should sober you. He is watching as we engage in song. He is watching. So our preparation for that surely ought to begin as we look at our annual calendar. I remember talking to one friend who was trying to come up thinking through his calendar. He said, okay, I'm, I'm planning this many weekends over the course of the year to definitely be gone with work and so forth. And, and by the time we added it all up, I, I remember saying to him, you know, brother, as I look at this, you're planning on, like before anything else crazy happens, like you get sick or something, you're planning on this many Sundays that for sure you're not going to be present. Well, then what happens if your children get sick or you get sick or somebody dies and you have to, I mean, the unexpected could happen. Well, well then that's on top of all the times you're planning to miss this assembly of God's people. That, that, are you sure that's a wise pattern? So our planning, our annual planning should include the thought, not that we could never miss an assembly, but surely it ought to be the rare exception. It ought to affect our planning on Saturday night. So that as we're looking at it and saying, well, what, 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 would, what would most help my, my spiritual and physical preparation for meeting with God in the morning? What, what would most help my ability to come into that meeting with expectation, mental clarity, and spiritual clarity? What would most help that? Because I'm meeting with God. We are meeting with God. How, how can I plan in such a way in terms of my bedtime and my children's bedtime? What about Sunday morning? How can I plan in such a way that the departure for church is peaceful rather than frantic and loving rather than and <laughs> not loving? 
How can I prepare my children in such a way that they're seeing my anticipation as something of meeting with God rather than just doing the duty of going to church and mumbling through songs and prayers? No, we're not some mantra religion that gathers together to mumble through our religious exercises and then goes home. We're coming to meet with a person that is listening and speaking and responding and changing and acting. And so our, our, our tangible preparation in our annual calendar on Saturday night, on Sunday morning, ought to reflect that, that this is a lot closer to a wedding than a Zoom call. It's a lot closer to a personal encounter, right, than a post office sending and receiving. That this is a meeting with God, and it ought to have a certain expectation and preparation in that way. Not that God cares about how fancily we're dressed or, or how impressive we look. No, no, we're talking about our heart preparation, our, our mind preparation, our bodily preparation. Are, are, we, are we coming as if we are meeting with God himself? Because we are. So it, it ought to affect, I think, our preparation before the meeting. It, it ought to affect, secondly, our attention and emotion during the meeting. It ought to affect it thinking that God is not just out there somewhere. He is right here by His Spirit. Our thoughts should be disciplined. We, we ought to discipline our minds during the meeting. And mental discipline is one of the hardest kinds of discipline. We have to get into our own mind and tell it, sit down and listen or stand up and sing no, this is not the time to think about that. And our minds are unruly children. They are unruly children. They run around and they will not obey. So we must make them obey. No, no, no. This is the gathering of God's people. You are meeting with God. He is watching you right now. Your little unruly two-year-old mind. He is watching you. So sit and listen or stand and sing because God is present not sternly to, to chastise or harm, but gloriously and magnificently present. So it, it ought to affect our attention, our emotion during the meeting. Do you see how it's possible to come into a meeting and think, I'm, I'm just sort of mumbling through religious exercises rather than thinking about God before God, singing to God while he listens, receiving from his word as he respeaks it through a preacher, I, I, I am meeting with God right now. I, I said a couple weeks ago, there's, there's something good about an older generation of Christians who had this sense, I think, greater than we do. They, they had a, a more accurate sense of their inability to multitask and their need for concentration and focus when they would come in and sit and prepare their mind and thoughts. And then they would try to focus and listen to what was being said and what was being sung. They have no intention of, of mumbling as if, well, well, this is just kind of exercises we're going through here. There ought to be a kind of attention and emotional focus during the meeting with God's people and with God because God is present meeting with us. We are talking to God. We are declaring to one another in the presence of God what we believe about Him. We are affirming in the presence of God and before the witnesses of His angelic host who He is and what He has done. So when you think about yourself in heaven, as Ken said last week, I trust there will be a sense of before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest, there He is, whose name is love. He you ever live and plead for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name written on his hearts. Behold him there, the risen lamb. My perfect, spotless righteousness. The great, unchangeable I am. The king of glory and of grace. H how engaged will we be in heaven? And we ought to be pressing to be that engaged when we gather at this precursor to heaven on earth. There ought to be a kind of emotional and, and physical attentiveness. I, 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 I'm not talking about, you know, as if some person who is 90 years old should be able to leap and dance and shout. No, no, but to the degree that our bodies allow us 
I'm not talking about having some kind of hyper-formal meeting where we can't have babies crying. God doesn't care about babies crying. He cares about grown men and women whose minds are drifting and not meeting with God. There ought to be a kind of attention and emotion during the meeting, during the singing. I'm telling my unruly two-year-old mind, stop it and pay attention to the glory of God. Listen, this is true. This is true. This is true what is being sung right now. Finally, third application. Our prayers for the meeting. Our prayers for the meeting. There, There ought to be a kind of prayerful expectation since God promises to meet with his people. A prayerful expectation. What are we praying? Let let, let me ask you that you would pray for the Sunday gathering of God's people. For God to do what only God could do. Listen, God delights to meet the faith of his people with provision. And yet, when there is little faith, he, he often will withdraw the full manifestation of his glory and his power so that we press into him with faith. God, God is not some sort of machine that just operates indifferently to the faith of his people. Somehow, in the mystery of his sovereignty and his providence, he has chosen to act in response to the prayerful, faithful requests of his people. And so we want to pray that God would move in God-sized ways when we gather to meet him. We, we want to pray to that end. Let me please, let me urge you, please pray for this meeting. It was said of Spurgeon that he said, what is the success of your ministry? And his answer, my people, pray for me. Let us pray for one another, for the preacher, for the worship leader, for one another, that we would encounter the presence of God doing what only God can do. Look, lead your children to pray for this meeting. You personally pray for this meeting. Pray the following things. We pray in this meeting that that we would see God working spiritual power through the preaching of his word. We pray that. We pray that we would see spiritual power through the preaching of his word, including the conviction of sin, the revelation of the finished work of Christ, the glory of his salvation, the hope of our eternal inheritance. We do not come expecting a mumbling over dead religious mantras. We pray that God would reveal the truth of his glory. We pray that he would search our souls to communicate to us where, wherever our lives have wandered from his truth. We are praying for conviction. We're not hoping it doesn't come. We're hoping it does come as an evidence of his spirit at work calling us back to himself. We're not coming to church hoping that we can get away with not too intrusive a meeting. We're praying for an intrusive meeting. If we are weary, we are praying for the comfort of his spirit to build us up and to build up the weary among us. If, if there are those who have been concealing their sin, we pray God by his searching spirit would expose those sins in their heart and would bring them to repentance. We are praying that God would break up the hard heart and break up the rocky ground. If if there are those who are bored with his glory, we are praying that he would illuminate the greatness of his majesty. If there are those who are dry, we are praying that he would pour out springs of water in the desert. If we have been engaging in the foolishness of the world, we are praying that God would pour out his wisdom. If we've been loving our earthly treasures too much, we are praying that God would remind us of his glory and our internal inheritance in Christ. We come asking that he would give us power to serve one another, to speak prophetically to one another with anointing, to encourage one another, to pray for healing and the sick would be healed. We come we come praying for God to do what only God can do. If we are parents, we pray that God would convert and mature our children. We pray that God would turn those who do not believe in him, but some, somehow who wander into this meeting, that they would come to know Jesus, they would see him publicly portrayed as crucified and risen, and they would turn to him in faith and suddenly see that their, their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We pray that, Lord, 
by your power that the bitter would become forgiving. That broken marriages would be restored. That indifferent souls would be enlivened. We don't come thinking we're just going to send a few messages up to God and receive a letter or two in return. We come to meet with God. Doing in the spiritual realm and perhaps in the physical realm what we believe he is able to do in the assembly of his people. If this is an assembly that doesn't just pray towards God but meets God, that presence makes all the difference. Spurgeon said this to close. What the moon is to the night, or the sun to the day, or the Nile to Egypt, or the dew to the tender herb, or the soul to the human body, that is the presence of Jesus to his church. Give us the Spirit of God, and we will ask for no endowments from the state, nor sigh for the prestige of princely patronage. Endow us, O God, with the Holy Spirit, and we have all we need. The Holy Spirit can make amends for all deficiencies and clothe his poor and obscure people with an energy at which the world shall tremble. The working of the eternal spirit, the presence of Christ in the midst of his people, is the sun of righteousness arising with healing beneath his wings. This has been our confidence as a church these 18 years. And if we are yet to see greater and better things, we must still rely on this same strength. The divine presence of Jesus Christ by the wonder working spirit, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, right now we come to you in faith for our future assemblies, that you would fulfill the pattern of your word and that you would fulfill your own promise as we know you will, that you would manifest your presence among your people. Lord, that we would anticipate meeting with you when we are gathered together. That we would anticipate seeing the power of your spirit in the way that we gather together. Lord, I pray that we would all be as those who are anticipating and expecting a meeting with our divine and supernatural God in the heavens. Gloriously come to us by your spirit. Lord, let us feel the privilege of this that we can meet with you without any sacrifice or atonement because of your finished work, that we can boldly have access to your presence and boldly claim the outpouring of your Spirit on our assemblies because your finished work was sufficient and you paid for our sins. And now, though we were once scattered and far off, we have been drawn near and assembled to meet with our God. So do that, Lord. And as it relates to the assembly of your people, we want to be where you are. We want to gather to meet with you. So now, Lord, hear our song by faith and draw us into this assembly in the future with great anticipation and faith and prayer and zeal. And meet us, we pray, in Jesus' name.